You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is uh, November 5th, 2020, and I have a great privilege to be here talking with Emily Chamley Wright. Uh, Emily, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Um, so thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, as you know, the context is, is that we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Mercatus Center, um, and both you and I were products of the sort of, I guess, first generation of Mercatus uh, uh, students or whatever. So um, anyway, thanks. It's um, absolutely my delight to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so, you know, we, we've discussed this personally at times. I mean, you yourself were the person that had great interest in the arts and uh, whatnot, and you ended up by becoming a professional economist. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Roy Cordato and Karen Palasek both were graduates of Hart School of, of Music. It was a music conservatory, and they were going to be in music, and then they became economists. Um, so that's kind of a, a strange thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your own, like, origin story, how you, you know, got interested and see these things connected in some sense in your interest. Yeah, and, and it's really a Mason story in so many ways because uh, I grew up in the Northern Virginia area, so uh, Mason was was kind of my backyard. And I looked for arts programs around the country that I was uh, interested in. And what it really boiled down to is, is what I wanted to do was I knew that I didn't have the native talent to be a professional performing artist. Uh, and it, it was it was something that I loved, but it you know, but I I was already eighteen, and I just knew that that the um, if someone was going to be uh, offering me a contract, it would have happened by then. So I was really <laughs> practical, um, and and said, well, what what could I do? I could imagine a career in arts administration, for example, something that would keep me close into it. So it seemed to me an eminently uh, practical thing to do was to get a business degree and then continue on with my arts community activity that I had already developed in the Washington DC area. And Mason would allow me to do that, right? So I went to Mason as a business major uh, or intent upon a business major and then, you know, doing some things in the arts, but really mostly keeping my ties with the arts community, the dance community in particular in the DC area. Um, and then I, so as part of the business major, I took introductory econ, which just scared the bejesus out of me because, you know, we had uh, um, Jim Bennett, who was, um, you know, Jim does not start his freshman classes in economics um, with a kind of um, soothing bedside manner kind of <laughs> approach, right? He's like, he's <laughs> like, this is going to be a really tough class. If you're not accustomed to a college level class, you know, look to your left, look to your right. One of you isn't going to be here by the end, you know, kind of that, that, that sort of story. So I was terrified, and, I, and so I, I worked really hard. And it turned out that in working really hard, I kind of liked it. And the sort of the, the economic way of thinking became super and appealing to me, and it answered a lot of questions I had had. And uh, 
So I went to my advisor in the business uh, department said, well, great. You know, after I did like the first couple of econ classes, I said, you know, when do I get to take my next econ class? And they said, no, you're done. You're good. It's all finance and accounting from here. And I'm like, well, that sounds boring, you know? So, so um, yeah, I thought about it and uh, I, I went to my father for advice. Um, and, and, and I said, I'm thinking about economics as a, as a degree instead of business. And he, and he said, economics is a completely useless degree, but if that's what you want to do, that's what you should do because you'll find it yeah. interesting and it'll be, you know, the kind of thing that you should do in college is do, you know, follow your passion. Uh, so that, that was, that was pretty, pretty cool of my dad to just kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah it probably makes no, no practical sense, but go for it. And so uh, from there, I started just taking, you know, the intro intermediate classes and that, you know, kind of connected me to people like Karen Vaughn and Don Boudreau and, and then I started getting more and more into the upper level stuff, which, which was the Austrian courses and the comparative systems courses and the political economy courses. And that's, that's really where the, um, the traction came that, oh, this is more than, than just something that's, that's interesting to me. This is something that really is, is um, exciting me at a deeper level and you know, kind of want to be a part of it going forward somehow. So that's how it started. That's a great story. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but one time I was crossing the border from the United States and Canada, and the Canadian customs official, when he was looking at my, my passport, asked me, what are you going here for? And I said, I'm going here for an economics conference. And he said, when you were a little kid, did you ever imagine you'd grow up to be an economist? And I said, no, I thought I'd grow up and play shortstop for the New York Yankees. And he handed my passport back and he says, don't give up on the dream. <laughs> so, uh, so very few of us ever think that we're going to go into economics or whatever, right? But it is amazing this, uh, and especially as you talk about there, the kind of economics that people and were teaching uh, you know, Bennett or uh, other people that taught principles of economics at that time, which would have included also Walter Williams, and also the context of the time, they made economics come alive so much that you could explain and understand the world. Um, but you mentioned these advanced classes, and I, I, I guess I want to get at the question, which is our, our biggest common uh, ground, which is what's your first impression when you met Don Lavoy for the first time? So that was in the comparative economic systems class. And I was a junior at the time. And the first impression were like his early uh, uh, lectures in uh, comparative economic systems. And you know what those lectures are, right? It's yeah. he starts out by saying, look, it's really important whether or not the uh, money supply grows by uh, 3% a year or 3.2% a year. That can make a big difference. But that's not the kind of question we're going to be asking in this class. We're going to be asking questions like, should we have property rights or not? And, and so, so those sort of fundamental big questions, you know, what is the source of wealth creation? Where does the astonishing degree of, of uh, social coordination that we see in a, in a market, how does that come about? Is there, are there other ways to coordinate society and what do what do they look like and what are the what are the trade-offs with with yeah. alternative forms of social coordination those are 
the big questions that really animated the, the discipline for me. And, and that, was, that was a big part of it, is that he was willing to ask the big questions. Uh, but as we got into the course, he, he, he said, you know, he would, uh, especially as we went, entered into the, the segment on fascism as an economic system, you know, he, he asked the question, how is it that one of the most sophisticated societies in the world, uh, a society that uh, generated the most beautiful music, um, you know, some of the most important philosophical um, advancements comes from a, a society that then systematically murders 6 million of its own people. Yeah. And then what does economic policy have to do with that outcome? Yeah. It's your duty. If you're an economic student, if you're a student of this discipline, it's your duty to understand that connection. And like, I still get the, the, the hairs on the back of my arm just like, like rise up every time I think about that moment because that was the moment, you know, I, I brought that back home that night and I didn't, I didn't sleep. I literally stayed up all night and I was thinking, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. That's, you know, I want to do that. I want to do what he does and I want to be as good at it as he is. And, and then like within like the next beat, there I am like sitting up in the middle of the night, you know, just kind of thinking it all through. And then I was like, oh crap, that means I have to get a PhD in economics. <laughs> that was not part of the plan, you know? And so um, that, but I remember that night as being a pivotal night where it was like, okay, um, I guess this is what we're gonna be doing. And so that was, that really was the plan. So it was in that first encounter, that first course with Don, he was willing to ask the big questions. And another thing he was willing to do is, is to say, um, it was very clear he was a, a pro-market uh, kind of economist, but he was the real deal in terms of a scholar who understood the appeal of Marxism. And, and, and he would say, you know, if you don't understand the appeal of Marxism, you don't understand the 20th century. Right. And so really taking seriously the, the moral and philosophical commitments of Marxism so that you could understand its appeal rather than, you know, find the easiest way to take the cheapest shot was also what made an impression on me and, and, and that those themes have stayed with me forever. Yeah, I, I really, the, one of the biggest costs of, of the timing of technology and stuff to me is that we don't have a record of, uh, uh, we don't have much of a, of, a, of a video record of Don as a teacher. And I think this is a huge, huge thing because in my impression, when I think about that, I think this is the boldest yet most sophisticatedly compassionate teacher I've ever encountered. And I have encountered bold teachers before, but they didn't necessarily weren't compassionate. They were more yep. like, look to the right, look to the left. You know, you're going to get out of here, right? <laughs> um, and also a, a moral purpose to the life, the, the being able to uh, get to root of these problems in society that Don communicated and conveyed to you. 
And it's interesting to me, like when I see him, like there's a video of him giving a lecture at Mason on Marxism and central planning or whatever. And, you know, I use it, I give it to my students to watch and everything like that. And it's very thorough and it's all those things like that, but it doesn't yet kind of communicate this impression that I always had of why it is that I wanted to sit in the very front row. You know, most of my education, right. I sat in the back row and, you know, did, but like, you know, there's a few professors, I moved all the way to the front row and I, and I wrote down everything that they were, you know, doing and Don was one of them and, and uh, it's a very, very unique sort of environment. He was unashamedly radical in the yep. intellectual sense, like get to the root cause of the issue. Um, I, I guess that I also wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the Center for Study of Market Processes, which was the predecessor of the Mercatus Center or the earlier manifestation of the Mercatus Center, um, because you have a unique window into it because of being, getting excited about these ideas as an undergraduate and then, you know, getting Don into Don's orbit as an undergraduate and then continuing through, uh, through your PhD. Uh, which is different from, you know, other people who went somewhere else and then came sure. there or whatever. And so uh, give us a little bit about that perspective that you have of from your different windows, like CSMP yeah. as an undergraduate and as a graduate and then as an alumnus. Yes. So uh, one of the, th it, it helps to paint the picture, right? You know, the picture I'm going to paint, it's like, th you know, Robinson Hall, you know, very an unadorned <laughs> classroom building. It had pretty much zero sex appeal to it. Yeah. And I don't even think Robinson as Robinson, as we, uh, as we remember it, I don't think even it exists anymore. Does it? Well, it's getting leveled and rebuilt it's getting leveled. It, but okay. in the middle of COVID. So I have no idea what I've seen. You know, <laughs> so so it's, by the time this thing airs, it probably won't be around yes. anymore, but it right. was, it was uh, uh, just the Mercatus, or the center for the study of market processes was essentially the, an office at the end of a long hallway that had one proper office, a sort of tiny little reception area, and then one awkwardly long and narrow conference room, essentially. Right. And that was it. That was the center. And so as an undergrad, uh, my encounter with it, you know, by this time I was, uh, I had taken an Austrian course. I was, um, you know, really kind of marching down the path of, Hayekian, Hayekian um, uh, social theory, uh, as well as a sort of, um, you know, economic perspective. And I wanted to be a part of anything that, that Don was a part of. Right. So I, I crashed graduate student readings groups. No one told me that I was actually invited. I just decided that I was. I, I, <laughs> I, now, maybe someone might have suggested, oh, yeah, we, you know, we gather. It's like, great. What time? So I, I crashed and I had like literally no business being there in terms of my level of preparation and reading. But the graduate students who were there, you know, Don was awesome. Um, and the graduate students who were there were, you know, just really, I look back at it now and they're just, you, you all were so sweet, right? You just were, you were just, <laughs> you, you chief among them were, would like look over your shoulder and you're like, who's this, right? Oh, okay, sh cool. Bring her into the room, right? And so you guys put up with me, and and were were patient, and um, and the that those early experiences of being treated like your ideas matter, that's so profound for someone who enters into a space and doesn't necessarily think that that 
she has a scholarly persona, uh, you know, having other people willing to allow you into it, even though it's, it's in some sense, you know, you're, you're kind of faking it until you make it. Um, other people being willing to, to uphold that polite fiction is really helpful in a young scholar's uh, career because it, it meant that I could start to take my own thinking seriously. So that, that little tiny conference room at the end of the hallway was a whole universe um, that opened up because people were intellectually hospitable. Yeah, it's interesting. I think part of that is that we were all told that we didn't belong which is part of the issue. So we were all like kind of had a chip on our shoulder at some level, but at the other level, Don told us we weren't allowed to have be bitter and have a mm -hmm. chip on our shoulder. So instead it was all like a different kind of idea. And there was a real sense of community that was formed in this little tiny thing, including Colleen Moretta and, you know, every little bit and piece of the different folks were important, I think. Um, in an earlier part of the center, which is before your time, and they didn't keep doing it. They actually used to hire, they had a, 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 an editor that sole purpose was to help graduate students learn how to write. It was amazing, yeah. actually. That, that yeah, when you think about years. it. That, that existed for my first year, the summer after my first year, summer after my second year. And then it got, then they, they moved on. And part of it is, is that the first year was devoted to learning how to write scholarly journal articles. And the second one was learning how to write op-eds. And people weren't as interested in writing op-eds and policy papers, except for someone like Jerry Ellig or whatever, right? And so, and then they specialized in that. But most of us were interested in that first year. But that very first year, Don was the one who was so excited. And they had this professional editor. And they worked with us to try to, and that's, you know this, I mean, this is, this is the downside of Don, which is that he had those pens in his pocket and you would hand them your draft to your paper, <laughs> and your paper had less white space and black on it than it had red, red and all that other stuff all over it. And you learned he was an exacting, as much as he was inviting, he was exacting in, in your expression of things. And so uh, anyway, it was just, it was an amazing environment that they created around Jack High and uh, Don, and at that time, it would have been George Selgin, I guess, and, and Don Boudreau as well, right? That, mm -hmm, exactly. And Karen, and Karen. Yep. Yeah. And Victor Vanberg was pretty much always at the Public Choice Center by the time you were, because he, when I started, he was in the center with us, and then he moved to the Public Choice Center, I think. Yeah, so he wasn't typically found in that space, but then um, a lot of the more Austrian-bent um, uh, grad students, like I did, took his uh, institutions course. Right. And that was really valuable. Yeah. And, and uh, was Jennifer Roback teaching at Mason when you were? Yes, she was. She taught in the uh, micro sequence when I, when I started out in the first year sequence. She, she taught part of the micro sequence. And Mike Alexiev taught math econ. Yeah, Mike, and Mike then taught the math econ course and he taught um, the Soviet systems course. Soviet systems course, yeah. And, and, uh, and did, did you have, like in your undergraduate sequences, did the market, like did Jack High teach intermediate micro or did you, or was that Boudreau or somebody? Or? So by the time I was a senior, I'd, I'd like finished all the undergraduate uh, econ courses and I started taking some graduate courses. And yeah. so I took, um, a, a course, a version of the Austrian course 
at the graduate level with Jack in, in my senior year, and which right. was perfect because you really changed it up. I think that I took a similar uh, course with a similar title later, but it was a very different course by the time I took it as a graduate student. Um, just the, you know, the focus in the second iteration was much more on research and writing, um, right. uh, much heavier. And so it was a very different course and a very different experience for me. So I, so I got to dip my toes in the water in grad course, uh, grad courses, and actually like the fun grad, grad courses. I didn't, you know, as a, yeah. as a, a senior in college, or I was taking the sort of second year classes yeah. of graduate work, you know, not the hard stuff, not the, 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 the you know, the spinach, not the spinach of the micro and the macro and, and the, of the first year courses. And so it was a little bit of a rude awakening to move from kind of, you know, this, um, this, this undergrad where everybody had kind of embraced me and was, you know, I felt like I was being treated as a graduate student and a full fledged, you know, member of the community. And then I became a first year uh, graduate student and I got the full treatment of what it feels like to be a first year graduate <laughs> student, which is like, you know, like, don't talk to me until you finish your prelims, right? Yeah. Don't talk to me until you are, have successfully covered the hurdle, you know, surmounted the hurdle of the first year, then we can, you know, get you back into Austrian stuff and comparative systems stuff. And, and so it was very much, uh, you know, I got put back into that sort of like boot camp mentality yeah. as a, as a first year graduate student, which was very, a very cold bracing shower, uh, but it was a good it, point. It, it, and, and to be honest with you, I do think that the sequence at Mason in that time uh, was, was a very rigorous, I mean, it was a very rigorous presentation of neoclassical economics. I mean, Mike yeah. Alexiev was teaching us general equilibrium theory and welfare economics. And in the first class, you know, we were learning Chicago price theory, like to the, you know, to, to the nth degree, right? I mean, it was all uh, optimization and equilibrium models. Yep. And, you know, so uh, macro was the, the, ironically, macro was where you had some breathing room because uh, Don taught the second macro course. Uh, at least when I was going through, Don taught second macro and it was all laying hoof it in UCLA coordination, Keynesianism. The, the first one was all ISLM and rational expectation stuff and everything like that. And so it was dreadful. Uh, and we did that, but it wasn't pretty, it, it, I mean, we, I, I, I feel very uh, fortunate in the education that, that we got at that time um, at the school and, and, and uh, I think the teachers. I wanted to mention one more thing before I go on, which is the one thing I think is unique about the center was, um, well, you would have come in when they were just getting tenure, probably. But like when I started graduate school, which is just a few years before you, um, they were all assistant professors. And they really were dedicated to teaching. So Jack, who wasn't the same kind of teacher as Don, but nevertheless, he was very, very thorough. Right. I mean, yep. his, his syllabus and the way he walked through. So even when he did Austrian economics, it was like, it, it, it was, a, you know, like right down the line. Like, and so it was a great course to take from him because you really just learn, you know, in, 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 in sort of straightforward way, the main propositions of the Austrian. Yeah. He didn't tradition. indulge, he didn't indulge his, 
favorite margin of Austrian thinking. He, he said, look, I've got to be, I've got to induct these young scholars into a tradition. And so yeah. it's my job to induct them properly. And I can't do that if I spend all the time focusing on the things that are, you know, tickling the back of my brain right. um, as an Austrian, I, you know, that, that doesn't really introduce them to the body of thought. So he really took that, at least as demonstrated by the, the, the course itself, it seems to me that he really took that, that responsibility yeah, seriously. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, they were a good team, Don and, and they were. Jack. Um, in the sense that Jack really gave you that thorough step-by-step -step, cover the whole material survey. And then Don was, you know, where are the cutting edge issues? Diving right? into hermeneutics and hypertext. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. So it was, a, it was an unusual thing because he, you know, it was all based in Mises for Don. But then sure. it was like, where can I go with these ideas rather than where I've been with them? Uh, right. kind of idea. But that was anyway. another reason why those those uh, uh, readings groups were so important. We we read big chunks of human action in yes. a readings group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that actually was Don. I mean, uh, Jack. Uh, from what I understand historically, is that Jack was a visiting PhD student at NYU, mm -hmm. and he was doing his PhD at UCLA. But then he had a chance to come and do the 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 and and. You know, NYU is a different kind of beast. And so Jack wasn't able to get the, He could get standard neoclassical economics out at UCLA. So he wanted to come and he you know, wanted to study with Lachman and Kersner, but he wanted to get more Austrian economics. And so he started a reading group. And that reading group included Don, but also Ebeling and a bunch of other people that you all know their names around. And they read every page of Human Action you know, all the way through and had these debates and discussions about where it's going and his relationship. And so as a result, Don became convinced that reading groups were this amazing way to learn. And then, you know, there was never a semester where Don wasn't directing a reading group. It was amazing, right? right? Exactly. And, exactly. And if you didn't do the reading, and by the way, the reading didn't dovetail with what you were taking in classes. So God, if you didn't no. do the reading, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that, that's the only way that you, you know, got to be a part of the conversation. No, we were, we would do, um, we went through, I remember going through human action and theory of money and credit. Uh, but I also remember whole semesters where we were diving into Habermas. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Like talk about like, you know, sort of like highly impractical if what your goal is, is to optimize your results on the, you know, prelims and field exams. Right. right? <laughs> but, but it was, it was this, this challenge to take a voice on the left really seriously. And that was, that also epitomized on. Yeah, it was later on. It was Frederick Jamison and other kinds of people, which is like some, some semesters it'd be bizarre as hell, but it's funny that you mentioned Habermas because I, I tell this story to everyone in our, in our third year graduate school, Dave Pacheco and I said, we, 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 all of a sudden we realized that we have to get a job at the end of this. So we go and talk to Don and we say, Don, you know, how the hell do you get a job? You know, at the end of this. And Don, of course, says to us, I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't know that that was part I, of my responsibilities yeah, is to worry I, about that. I do this. So then we started randomly applying to different places. And, and it was at a time when heterodox economics was starting to, like, you know, get around. So this little college in New, in New York, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, yeah. uh, had this position for a heterodox economist. And Pachico and I made their list to be interviewed, even though we were AB, not even ABD, I don't think, at the moment. Wow. But anyway, 
So we get invited to the Eastern meetings to go and interview with them, you know, and like, I forget which one of us, you know, one went at this time, the other one went another time. And then we we're going to meet up for dinner and talk about how our interviews went. And so we sit down and, and, and we say, well, how'd the interview go? And we both are like, oh, they, it was awesome. They loved what we had to say. It was great. Well, what did you say? They said, oh, I would design a course on the on the Hayek and Habermas debate. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, that's funny, Dave. I said the same thing. <laughs> and so, you know, they must have thought like, what the hell are these clowns, you know, doing, right? So we didn't get the job, by the way. But that was our... But, was but right that also before. begs the question, who was it, Hobart and William Smith, that got that job ad passed through. Yes, unbelievable. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's a uh, story there. Fascinating. Anyway, there's we a story were, there for but sure. That was all from Don, you know, uh, getting us. And I remember even when I was doing my dissertation, which was on the Soviet experience, and I was reading a lot of different people, Maurice Dobb and others, B.H. Carr and whatnot, and a lot of various different. Don always demanded that you have the most charitable reading of the people that you're arguing with. Exactly. Even in exactly. The, just like what you said before about with the, with the fascism ideas is uh, how can a civilization which is responsible for such great beauty be responsible for such great inhumanity, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and so you can't just dismiss it by saying, oh, they're all, they're all horrible people or whatever. They're right? all Nazis and, by their DNA. Yeah. And yeah, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, it's not intellectually honest. And also it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help us really understand more to the point is that no one, you know, no, no lay person figures that economics has anything to do with, uh, you know, 6 million Jews being, being systematically murdered. You know, he was connecting those dots for us and seeing those connections between nationalist economic policy and the kind of horrors that that uh, that came in their wake, and 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 so that connection was what was that that connection that system was what was animating him and helping us to um, become better economists. Yeah. No. I. I, I yeah. Um, so let's turn to, to your own chosen field of research, um, and that was in the field of development economics with a focus on context, both historical and institutional, and the role of the entrepreneur. Uh, tell us a little bit about that project, dissertation, your subsequent work, your uh, time that you spent in Africa, you know, these kind of things. Sure. Um, let me, let me um, back up just one step, which was the first a paper that I wrote that I would count as like a, you know, a, you know, deep dive research paper. Um, and I did it as a, as a, um, as an independent study. I think I, 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 it was under Don and I honestly don't remember. I think it was as an early graduate student. Um, and, uh, and it was on Quaker business history. And so I was, I was interested in uh, Quakerism in my personal life, but I, but, but the, this, um, uh, this business history of Quakers uh, having success in a, um, in a mercantile uh, merchant-based um, set of, of business practices and really standing out for their, their practices, that their moral and religious commitments um, constrained them in some ways 
Um, but it also then gave them, a, ended up giving them a comparative advantage. And so the old saying is, you know, um, the Quakers came um, to America to do good and they wound up doing very well, uh, yeah. meaning that, <laughs> that uh, they were actually commercially successful. Um, and so I was really interested in understanding the, um, the network effects and the ideological commitments of, of Quaker business. And so that really set me up to be interested in this confluence of culture and economics. You know, culture is, was so often portrayed as the sort of thing that kept us from being um, homo economicus, the thing that kept us from being efficient, that if it weren't for cultural constraints, we could have widespread prosperity and development. And I was really seeing it in a different way that, that people interpret their environment and their possibilities for economic progress through a cultural lens. And yeah, that, that cultural lens may uh, confine our activities like it did for, for Quaker business people. They couldn't, they couldn't engage in munitions um, uh, production from, because of their, their peace testimony. Um, but they, but they started really going down, you know, do it using um, uh, ironworks for pots and pans and for and, and refining processes so that they became much more efficient so that everyday um, utensils and materials could become affordable. And so they were, it was a really, it was an expanse of the market kind of story um, that became an opportunity because of a constraint, a cultural constraint elsewhere. And so there are lots of examples like this um, uh, for, for, uh, for Quaker merchants who became, in essence, captains of industry. And so that was a fascinating story to me. I set that project aside and then I, I was really, I was interested in, in um, economic development. I was really, uh, I, I was enamored with the economic way of thinking, but also excited by the fact that wherever markets seem to thrive, human flourishing also seemed to thrive. And so I, I wanted to get at those kinds of questions. Um, in a developing world context. So I went to Ghana and I started looking around for uh, uh, projects that were probably kind of straight up political economy projects in a kind of P.T. Bauer-like way. You know, what are the, what are the institutional political impediments to economic growth um, uh, marketing board structures that um, uh, tried to con control competition and commodities, things like that, and how it was all just a recipe for crony capitalism. I went in with that lens, that political economy lens, and I landed in Accra and I go to the first informal market, which is if you want to eat, you know, that's what you're going to, that's what you've got to do just to, um, you know, be in the place. And I saw the sea of women dominating this local informal marketplace. And this was, this was no joke. This was not, you know, just a, you know, a row of women here or there. This was a deeply complex network of an informal market. And as far as the eye could see, women after women after women in stall after stall after stall in a place that was so confusing and maze-like that you could very, very easily get lost. And I was hooked. I mean, it was like a religious experience, you know, to, to, for an economist to see uh, market so fully on display and also see fully on display. I was aware that this was still uh, uh, 
you know, a, a socially conservative environment with respect to um, attitudes on gender equity. And here were women dominating this market context. And I was hooked. I was like, that's what I want to write about. That's what I want to get at. How does this work? What are the rules? What are the rules of this, of this environment um, that led to this and how do they operate in this environment? And so once it, it, I just had to see it before it became visceral. And, but once I did, you know, I, I really, you know, the, the political economy story was still there, but it was in the background. What I really wanted to elevate was the, 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 the intersection between the cultural systems and the economic systems. Yeah. Well, that work is just fantastic. I, I want to, I want to ask you a couple more questions about that, but I first want to just get back to the intellectual environment at Mason at the time, because it's a unique environment for studying economics and encouraging these kind of questions. And it wasn't just Don, um, like Don, well, first of all, in the, did you get a chance to study at all with Kenneth Boulding or was that? You know, we, he was in um, the, he didn't teach courses as I recall, right? You know, he was sort of like a guest, um, yeah. uh, a kind of visiting scholar, right? So, so I would go to some of his talks, but that was when I was an undergrad. Right. Okay. And so I didn't quite know like what, who this figure was. Like okay. I knew he was important, but I had no sense of his place in the intellectual history of economics. Um, uh, I, I encountered him at meeting a couple of times, you know, because yeah. he because he would yeah. visit meeting, um, yeah. and I and I knew that he was living on campus, and I, and so he was just kind of an enigma, and yeah. uh, that that I wondered at, but I didn't have it's it's a perfect example of how becoming a scholar is a process of becoming enculturated in a community, right. and I was still an outsider, in the sense not that you know. Um, I was being treated unfairly or anything like that. It was a matter of, it just takes time yeah. and kind of proximity to kind of absorb the, the cultural norms of the community, the community's narrative of itself. And so how a figure like he would fit in with the Austrian community and, and with um, other scholars and his wife, Elise Boulding, how she yeah. was fitting into that, uh, to that milieu as well. Um, I, it just was, it, it was happening, you know, outside of my sphere of awareness and consciousness at that point, I, I was just barely scratch at it. I was and just wondering because of the Quaker connection that, it, you know, when he passed away, um, you know, I think like schools like Swarthmore and other places that have strong Quaker heritage, maybe it's Haverford. I can't remember the yeah, one. I think it's Haverford. Haverford or whatever. They had like these celebrations, you know, however, Quakers do that for, you know, a week. Quietly. Or yeah, yeah, quietly. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that's one. But also then, how about McCloskey and Clomer? Were yeah. They, are they in your yeah. business of coming through? Yes. So they were um, also coming through, and they were part of, um, there were a couple of things. They were, they were part of, I think, some job talks at, at various points, you know, and again, talk about another thing that is um, somewhat of an opaque thing to peer into when you're a, uh, certainly an undergrad or first year graduate student. Um, but they were also part of a series that Don was a part of, which was called Interdisciplinary Trespassing. Yeah. And it was a series of um, lectures where, and it would feature scholars who 
um, were excited about kind of blurring the disciplinary lines and and not going in um, actually as uh, um, as uh, in a, in, a, in a way that would seem like as imperialists, right? Trying to just right. kind of dominate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pack your very nuanced um, intellectual program into my cost-benefit analysis. That's one version of interdisciplinary trespassing. And that was definitely not the spirit of this series. It was much more like, I'm going to really take your project from your discipline seriously and then think it through about what challenges it has for my projects, say in economics, and how it challenges economics to think differently about itself because of that, that challenge. So that was definitely the spirit. So Klammer came in under that, McCloskey came in um, with that series. And that, and, and what was helpful too is because it was, um, that series was truly an invitation across the campus. And mm -hmm. so I think that people had been prepped to avoid the uh, jargon um, the rarefied jargon of, of the discipline okay. so that we could ha could bring in people into the conversation across disciplines. And that was perfect for early graduate students, um, uh, you know, higher level undergrads who are in, who are willing to kind of think it through to gain a foothold in the discipline because it, you started to see its relevance. So those, um, those were um, really valuable contributions. Yeah. I think it's interesting because Don himself is kind of making a transition from economics proper to social theory and this interdisciplinary philosophy, history, politics is all part of the, you know, his, his agenda that he's doing. He's sharing that with everyone because he's so enthusiastic about what opens up. If you have economics as sort of your, your economic way of thinking, as you put it, as his groundwork, but then you're opening up to all these other vistas that are opened by these other disciplines. And that was one of the things Dom was going, you know, going through, I think. And so it was really fascinating to have all these people coming in. And he was very entrepreneurial in reaching out to bringing in McCloskey or bringing in a Klammer and, and seeing this kind of overlap between the concerns that they had about rhetoric and whatnot. And then, you know, other kinds of people doing history. So we remember at this time, Jack is really into business history. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that and all those things are going on. One last thing about this intellectual environment is, is that you, uh, Buchanan had already won the Nobel Prize. So he's not on campus as much as a normal faculty member would be. But there's also enough distance that maybe that the, the invites are declining a little. So does he come back into the teaching fold for you or is he not teaching at that time? Um, he is, and he isn't for me because I'm focusing in on the the comparative systems stuff and okay. the okay. Um, the Austrian stuff. Uh, but definitely, he's still he, for those students who are the public choice students. You know, yeah. he's he's definitely a part of a, 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 a important presence, just like Tulloch, um in the students who were funded through the public choice center. So there was there was. Um, uh, so that was, I think, um, it's it was not anything like a schism, but it was, but it was definitely a difference enough. But you're getting that Hayek Buchanan blend through Van Burr. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then um, is Karen Vaughn back? Is she the uh, department chair, or is she back in the classroom? She is definitely in the classroom. Uh, by the time I'm a, grad, a graduate student, um, because I'm taking 
courses with her, you know, which was very much a kind of early writer's workshop um, course. I honestly don't remember the, the, um, uh, the topic, but it was, it was about, you know, essentially Austrian slash political economy, but with a focus on um, writing where it's a small, it's a small group. So, so she's really helping to develop the writers, uh, the graduate students as writers um, in, in, in that period of time. Um, so I think by that time she had stepped down as chair, but, and it's all fuzzy. It's all fuzzy as to who was actually in the administration, which is in some ways like awesome, like graduate students shouldn't be paying attention to who's chair. Right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like like stay out of the academic politics as long as you can, because it'll, it'll come to your door soon enough. And, uh, and I do remember being somewhat oblivious to, um, some of the political machinations within, you know, campus politics. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, almost I to the that, point where it was like a willful ignorance. Yeah, um, the thing about Karen, which is pretty, is often not appreciated enough, is actually how clear a writer she is. Oh, like, yeah. You know, so if you read essays of hers, like, uh, does it matter if costs are subjective? She's dealing with a very fuzzy topic, but she makes it seem very clear. And her own contribution to socialist calculation debate is a very clear, straightforward uh, thing. So she actually had the ability to write about very complicated issues in a very clear manner. And so learning from her, I think, was really uh, important. Anyway, the reason why I asked you about all that is because this is kind of all the mix that's going on. And then you're off trying to now write on development economics. You're bringing the theories of entrepreneurship to bear on a cultural understanding of the rules of the game and and informal enforcement mechanisms and with a focus on actually uh, a a gender kind of um, sort of uh, what's the right way to put it a kind of unusual power in a gender in a powerless situation or voices being given to people that normally don't have voice but the mechanism isn't through politics but through markets so could you explain a little bit more about not only what you saw when you were there, but how then you develop this argument and it becomes such a, a major part of what you're talking about with regard to, to development economics. Yeah, so, so the backdrop is in this context is that um, at the time, you know, the main, uh, the main narrative within development economics and, and sort of global economics is, is that capitalism oppresses um, uh, uh, people of the global south, capitalism um, and markets are the source of um, of control and oppression, particularly of of women. And it's like you 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 go to the informal marketplace of a place like Accra, Ghana, and you go, oh no, this is you know this ex- exactly what you said, only exactly the opposite, right? I mean, it just it it's the it it was such an easy grab in some sense it was it was um it was low-hanging fruit intellectually to say that that it's way more interesting than you've just described that that yes women are of a marginalized status in many ways within this context and they are deploying market mechanisms in such a way 
so that they can maintain control over their own resources, that they're, they're, they are responsible for the, the care and feeding of, of their kids and, the, and the, essentially the, the school fees, the education of their kids. And they have had to have a way of maintaining control over their resources to do that. So, so then things like the rotating credit associations that they developed yeah. were a perfect mechanism that kept their earnings from the day out of the hands of their husbands, out of the hands of their brothers and their fathers when they would go home at night, they kept it within the security of, a, of an informally uh, designed uh, rotating credit association. It's brilliant, right? It allows them to accumulate. It also allows them security and safety of their resources right. when formal mechanisms like formal banking uh, mechanisms just were not set up for them, right? Uh, it was way too complicated. Um, and this was this is really just um, before like like uh, micro lending foundations right. and things like that are, are taking off. The Grameen Bank is is on the scene, but it's not it hasn't like taken hold as the uh, panacea. Um, and and even after even after it, it, it starts to take that starts to take root. Still, women are saying that that particular variation is something that is is pocked with flaws in my cultural context for some reason or another. And so they're always de devising alternatives to whatever um, formal system is offered to them. Yeah, it's a and fascinating bottom. Agency is what's what is what yeah. excited me more than anything else is that, um, yes, there are structures uh, in place, social structures in place that um, uh, that inhibit women from advancing. And also women are exercising agency at kind of like a hyper degree of agency um, that you can't ignore if you want to really understand what's going on here. Yeah, I think, Emily, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the point you made about the Grameen Bank and the, and the timing is very important here because that became then later on a kind of a, a policy of choice of a lot of experts from afar Whereas what you're actually seeing is a true bottom-up solution that happened before the experts. So the genius of the system is that it's bottom-up in the solving the problem that the people in that context had. Anyway, that 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 work of yours is is you know embedded in your book is just awesome. So and it it really is a, a window into the developmental process um, in in the right sort of way that gives weight to all of that bottom-up kind of energy that's associated with that. Uh, Bill Easterly recently had a, a post and he said that uh, we should listen to all the development experts, the, the 7 billion of them, right? And, you know, this is, this <laughs> is actually what, I'm, what I think about when I read your work about that is that's exactly right. This is, you know, not saying that you can't do anything, you know, and improve or whatever, but it's really, you know, the unleashing of the agency, as you said, of, of the people, and you give such right. weight to that. And you were there, right, which gives weight to like your argument as well. So it's not like you're just staring at a computer and running regressions. And I wouldn't have, if, had I not been there, I would not have seen the relevant things that mattered. Yeah. You know, I would uh, not have, I would not have picked up on um, both the constraints and the solutions to those constraints that I, had I not. Now, maybe, maybe someone who's just smarter than me can do that, but I'm not that smart. I need to like see it. 
Yeah. And, and so like having boots on the ground is the way in for me to see the things that are interesting. I want to come back to that uh, when we talk about your next project, but I, I want to step back because I don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, you left the program at Mason after getting your PhD and you ended up by being a teacher at an outstanding liberal arts college. Uh, one might say one of the Midwest elite colleges, right, of, of liberal arts. Um, you know, you were probably one of, I don't know, less than a handful of people that thought that markets were a good thing exactly. in that environment uh, of that school. Maybe I'm overstating that case. No, but, it's like I had a couple of colleagues in, in, my, in the economics department who, who agreed with me on that, and that yeah. was just about it. Yeah, but you had to interact, and, and you devoted an, uh, a, a good part of your first half of your career, really, to being an outstanding liberal arts teacher um, and a passionate teacher. I can remember, uh, you won't remember this, but John Tomasi, uh, we, you and I were both on a, a program at Brown, and we were in the big auditorium at Brown, and it was on the topic of development economics. I can remember, and I gave a talk, and my typical talk about, you know, transition economies and, you know, basically your version of the, the Bennett story. Look to the right, look to the left. Like, you know, you're going to grow up kind of, you know. No like, empathy. Yeah, yeah. No, the EQ no real, was not on display. Yeah, no, no real empathy or whatever. Just like, this is the way it has to be. If you don't do it, you're going to screw it up kind of thing. And I remember going to the end of the auditorium and you coming up and you giving a talk and thinking like, this is like the best teacher of, the, of like development economics I've ever heard. And like, if I was a kid in that room, like I would look at my talk and think like, well, I don't want to be like that jackass. <laughs> but I look at you and I'm like, oh my God, like you can be a human being and be a development economist. Like, that's awesome. And so, the, you know, there's a kind of a, 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 I mean, and I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's an art because it's really reflects you. But you were teaching in that environment. You're teaching with other disciplines. You're working with other colleagues. You're involved in that. You're working with really smart students that, um, you know, care. And, and yet, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, that liberal arts experience is kind of the, like where maybe the kind of ideas we care about thrive best but yeah. as teachers, but at the same time is also the one that's under the biggest threat now. Uh, right. So, and you're involved in all this. I wanted to ask you about your passion for teaching. Do you try to draw from Don in doing that? Or is that something that you're fueled all inside of yourself and your own experience? And No, definitely uh, Don was a big part of that. Um, it is, is that, that I want to do that moment of that realization that I stayed up all night. It in part was, and I want to do it as well as he does. And what he does so well, we've already talked about it, is, is, is that ability to say, you know, why should we care about, something like uh, the policies of economic nationalism, well, because it matters. It, it matters to humanity, right? And, and, and that's why it's important to understand sometimes difficult arguments in, in economics is because it is the thing, if you care about, uh, about the plight of, of human beings, you need to care about that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, it, so that really was a model for starting from where um, the typical student is, is that, you know, students care. The typical student cares a lot about the plight of the world. And, and so if you start there and you say what, you know, okay, 
we agree that this that this thing, the fact that people are kept from being able to um, succeed, have access to the basic requirements that allow for human flourishing, I care about that too, right? So start from the common ground and then say, and then how do we get there, right? Yeah. Th that approach was the only way you would you could. Uh, teach effectively at a place like Beloit because every, you know, every Beloit student that came in was somebody who, um, you know, had a, a, a vision for the world becoming a better place. And typically they didn't walk in thinking that markets were going to be a part right. of that. And so my job was not to crush the, um, the optimism and, um, and idealism out of them. My job was to, was to tap that optimism and idealism and help them to see how markets are part of that project, right? You know, um, or at least could be for them. And that, that was a much better training ground for me to teach than if there were a bunch of students who were already, you know, say came from conservative households right. who liked the status quo of markets. I mean, I found, you know, I would have been a sort of flaccid teacher, if that had been my audience, the, the, the audience of, of Beloit students were exactly the kind of challenge I needed to say, okay, take their concerns seriously. And if, and it's on you if you can't persuade them that they need to take markets seriously. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.